All right. Well, we will go ahead and get started. We're continuing our study in the book, Councils and Thoughts for the Spiritual Life of Believers by Thomas More. As I mentioned last week, we are currently going through a section of the book, which is chapters four through seven, and we've skipped around a little bit. You know, I, I gave a little intro last week just saying that you know, we've, we've been skipping around trying to tie together themes, but also trying to manage time accordingly based on length of chapters, etc. So uh, last Sunday we actually talked about chapters 4 and 7, <laughs> and today we're going to be coming back and covering chapters 5 and 6. Uh, another comment I made there, though, was that uh, even though these are discrete chapters and more is treating individual subjects in each chapter, they do flow uh, very smoothly together. He has common themes that tie these chapters together. And so what we saw last week was Moore was talking about, um, you know, we talked about sinnership and salvation and then the difference between the religion of the natural and spiritual man. And some of the themes we saw was, you know, what Moore is talking about you know, throughout the early part of this book and on into future chapters, the fact that um, we are best suited for Christ's office as Savior when we see our sin truly for what it is and we see our depravity for how deep it is and we feel that complete uh, dependence upon Christ for salvation. When we understand there's truly nothing good in us uh, that we can add to or contribute toward our salvation. Um, that's when we're best you know, suited to receive Christ as, as Savior. And then we also talked about um, a number of other items, but one of them that you know, we continued coming back to, and we're really going to see more bringing it home today in chapters 5 and 6, is the topic of the Christian's assurance of salvation. And that's something that I actually found really encouraging that you know more so early in his book uh, has decided to address the topic of assurance of salvation. I think that's, you know, for good reason. You know, it's clearly a very important topic, and it undergirds a lot of the other things that Moore is going to talk about when it comes to sanctification and obedience, is that, you know, assurance of salvation. And I think he also addresses it um, up front so early on because it is an issue for a lot of Christians. You know, we can probably think about, you know, the, the new convert or, you know, someone who's young in the faith. A lot of times, assurance of salvation is a major concern. You know, asking yourself, you know, how do I, I believe I'm saved, how do I know I'm saved? Uh, how do I know for sure? How can I feel peace with this or, or comfort in this? Um, but it's not only new converts or those young in the faith. This is an issue oftentimes even for people who've been saved for a very long time. You know, uh, it's not uncommon for Christians to go through seasons of, of doubt and you know, a, a failure to feel that comfort and assurance from Christ. And so I think that's one of the reasons that Moore has decided you know, right away in the book to start addressing that issue. He wants us to be able to rest in the comfort of that assurance of salvation uh, that only comes through Christ. And in particular, he, you know, he continues to 
to bring our focus back to Christ. That was one of the things we saw last week and something we'll see again today is you know, more essentially, you know, he's, he says it's, it's not that you won't see evidence of your salvation. You know, and it's not wrong necessarily to look inward for evidence of your salvation. You know, to, to say that's wrong would be to go against the clear teachings of Scripture. But what Moore is saying is that can't ever be our primary and central focus when we're trying to have assurance of salvation. That, you know, looking inward, looking for evidence of salvation in our lives. Our primary and central focus always needs to be the source of our salvation, the author of our salvation, Jesus Christ. So Moore, you know, continually tries to to pull us out of that sort of cycle of, you know, looking inward and introspection and continue to bring us back to, to focus our attention on Christ and remind us that Christ is the one who purchased our salvation. It's the one who gives it to us as a free gift. And so we need to keep our focus on him. And if we do that, we'll find much greater comfort and assurance than if we're constantly looking inward and questioning ourselves over salvation. But anyway, that's just sort of a bring us up to speed from last week and set the scene for this week because Moore's going to talk about that here in the book, and, and he does a, a great job of, of talking about it. So we'll just kind of expand on what he's saying. Oh, and lastly, I did mention this last week. Um, in the slides, as I pull them up, if you see, you know, I basically have two different quotes. I've got scripture quotes, which have the scriptures denoted, and then everything else is quotes from the book. So I haven't added any commentary of my own. It's either more or it's um, scripture quotes. So anyway, uh, with that said, we'll go ahead and start our lesson for today. And as I mentioned, we're starting in chapter five, which is titled Concerning Some of the Causes of Soul Bondage. So here in chapter five, Moore begins his discussion on what he's referring to as soul bondage. Uh, and that's a little bit of a unique term, kind of like sinnership last week. It, it's a term that's not one that we typically use very often. You know, we don't uh, throw that word out there, but I don't think it's a hard one to understand, you know, especially as we read through chapter five and we see how Moore uses the term. It's pretty clear to understand what he's saying. Uh, he opens the chapter with the sentence, there is no safety from spiritual bondage, but in a clear and continued remembrance of the full liberty which we have in Christ. And then a couple sentences later, he, he uh, quotes Galatians chapter 5 uh, in verse 1, where Paul says, For freedom Christ has set us free. Stand firm, therefore, and do not submit again to a yoke of slavery. And so I think as we read through what Moore has here in chapter 5, it becomes a little more clear what he's referring to as you know, spiritual bondage or soul bondages, almost like a, a restraint of the spiritual life, you know, an inability to uh, grow spiritually or to grow in grace because we are not living as people who have been set free from sin and set free to obedience uh, to Christ. Um, for a number of different reasons. In particular, he's going to give four different causes of soul bondage that we'll talk through. But I think that's uh, a good way to, to think of what he's saying there is 
essentially the spirit is is being restrained it's captive it's unable to to live in the way it ought to and we can reflect on what paul says in romans chapter 6 starting in verse 5 because there he addresses specifically you know the um the truth that we are made new when when we're saved by god we're made into a new person we're set free from slavery to sin and set free to obedience and therefore we ought to and must obey christ but in romans um, paul says for if we have been united with him in a death like his we shall certainly be united with him in a resurrection like his we know that our old self was crucified with him in order that the body of sin might be brought to nothing so that we would no longer be enslaved to sin for one who has died has been set free from sin Now, if we have died with Christ, we believe that we will also live with him. We know that Christ, being raised from the dead, will never die again. Death no longer has dominion over him. For the death he died, he died to sin once for all, but the life he lives, he lives to God. So you also must consider yourselves dead to sin and alive to God in Christ Jesus. So Paul here is exhorting us to consider ourselves dead to sin and alive to God. And essentially what Paul is saying there, you know, he doesn't say it in so many words, is so live like it. You know, live as Christians who have been set free from sin. We are able to obey God. We are able to please him. So we ought to do that. And what more I believe, is talking about here with spiritual bondage is, you know, a, a state where we're not doing that as we ought to. For you know, a number of different reasons. Things that, there are things that are holding us back. So let's go ahead and start working through those. There's, as I mentioned, four, I think, that he covers here. You, you could potentially argue that he has five. I think number four and five really are just sort of, uh, you know, saying the same thing again in a different way. So I, I've broken it up as four different causes of soul bondage, but uh, we'll walk through those. So the first one that he talks about is bondage due to self-condemnation. Moore says, some are in bondage to the law of God under self-condemnation because they see that they are not perfect in righteousness according to that law in its spiritual meaning. That one's pretty straightforward, right? It's, uh, you could think of someone, you certainly, you know, you could think of someone who's not saved and who comes under conviction of sin, uh, but in particular, you know, in this book, Moore is generally talking to believers, so maybe you would, you know, consider this one to be someone who uh, is newly converted or in the process of being converted and uh, is just being shown by God the, the depths of the depravity of their sin and thinking, you know, how can I uh, possibly ever be forgiven of all of this? Knowing all of the sin in my life, how could I ever be forgiven? And you know, as Moore says, that could be a form of spiritual bondage. Um, and Moore provides the way out here, which is very simple. It's the gospel, right? Uh, em- embracing and trusting upon the gospel of Jesus Christ. He says, from this bondage, Christ makes us free. For he himself is the end of the law for righteousness to everyone who trusts in him. And so it's a belief upon the gospel, an understanding of the gospel, obviously, has to precede that, but then a belief and a trusting upon that that sets us free from that bondage due to self-condemnation. And that self-condemnation is correct, 
right? It's, it's not as if we're, <laughs> it's not as if we're wrong in, in condemning ourselves, but to truly understand the gospel is to understand that we've been forgiven of, of our sin by Christ's atonement. As it says in Galatians chapter 2, verse 13, Christ redeemed us from the curse of the law by becoming a curse for us. For it is written, Cursed is everyone who is hanged on a tree, so that in Christ Jesus the blessing of Abraham might come to the Gentiles, so that we might receive the promised spirit through faith. Then moving along to the next uh, cause of spiritual bondage that Moore provides, he talks about a type of bondage due to failure to trust in Christ alone for salvation. Moore writes, Others are in bondage to religious ordinances. They know that there is no salvation apart from Christ. They know that his death is necessary for their salvation, but they think that ordinances also are necessary. With them, salvation is thus partly by the death of Christ and partly due to the to the due observance of religious ordinances. So here, these uh, individuals are, uh, you know, they're failing to remember the solos, right? The solos that we are so familiar with as a Reformed church, you know, uh, the alones, you know, say that we're saved by grace alone, through faith alone, in Christ alone. They would agree that we're saved by grace through faith in Christ, but they are forgetting the alone part. And this is exactly um, the issue that Paul was dealing with. You know, we have the great um, example that we can refer to in the book of Galatians. You know, Paul was addressing this exact issue with the church in Galatia, where they had been influenced by the Judaizers there and had been fallen under the sway of these false teachings after having been you know, converted by hearing the true gospel, they were then led astray by this false gospel, and that's what Paul's writing to them about. And, you know, the entire book of Galatians uh, is a treatment on that particular issue, but if we just look, you know, particularly at chapter 5, starting in verse 2, we see a good summary of what Paul's saying there. He says, Look, I, Paul, say to you that if you accept circumcision, Christ will be of no advantage to you. I testify again to every man who accepts circumcision that he is obligated to keep the whole law. You are severed from Christ, you who would be justified by the law. You have fallen away from grace. For through the Spirit, by faith, we ourselves eagerly wait for the hope of righteousness. For in Christ Jesus, neither circumcision nor uncircumcision counts for anything, but only faith working through love. We see there that Paul is telling them, you know, you're either saved by grace or by works, but you can't have both. If you're saved by grace, your works don't count for anything. They're not necessary. If you're, not, if you're saved in any way by your works, then it's not grace. And, you know, Paul's not addressing a group of people who are saying, who are denying that we're saved by faith in Christ. They're affirming that. The problem is they're also saying that there are other requirements for salvation in addition to faith in Christ. And Paul says you, you can't have it both ways. It's one or the other. Either Christ saved his people from their sins or not. 
and indeed Christ has saved his people from their sins. But Christ, or sorry, Paul says here that, you know, if you are going to put yourself under the law in any way, even in one uh, area, then Christ is of no advantage to you because it's, you're no longer resting upon his works. You're looking to your own works for your salvation. And so you can imagine, yes, this is a great source of spiritual bondage for, for people and souls that are in this type of bondage are in great peril. You know, they're not believing upon the gospel of Jesus Christ. They're under a false gospel as the church in Galatia was. And so, yet again, the solution to being released from this bondage is the true gospel of Jesus Christ. Coming to know that and, and trust upon the fact that we are saved by Christ's works alone with no contribution whatsoever on our part toward our salvation other than, as Jonathan Edwards said, the sin that makes it necessary. So then Moore moves on into a third cause of soul bondage. Oh, yes. Oh, the, you, you, I know I'm paraphrasing, but essentially you, you contribute nothing to your salvation other than the sin that made it necessary. Yeah. yeah. Um, so the third type of bondage is, uh, that Moore talks about is um, bondage due to looking inward for evidence of salvation. And this is the one that, as I mentioned at the beginning, we talked about already a little bit last week. But Moore keeps coming back to this. It seems to be an issue that's you know, important to him, and I think we should take note of that because it is something that can take hold of uh, you know, genuine believers. So Moore says here, others again are in bondage, not because they hope to do anything themselves to honor the law or to make their salvation more secure by ordinances, like the last group we talked about, for they know that Christ alone is sufficient both for perfect deliverance and for their standing in perfect righteousness before God. But they are in bondage because they look to their own doings to find an evidence that they have an interest in this complete work of Christ. Now, Moore points out here that this may seem very humble and God-honoring because they feel such guilt over their sin, um, you know, and they're, you know, broken over it and, and unable to feel assured of salvation because they see the sin in their lives and they don't see adequate evidence of sanctification. But Moore turns that around and says, it is not humble, for there is a looking out for self-goodness, right? We're looking to our own goodness as opposed to having our central focus being upon Christ and his perfect righteousness. And he says, it is not God-honoring, for there is dissatisfaction with the sure word of God. Now, Moore's going to come back to that again in chapter 6. But what he's saying here is that God has, you know, promised salvation for all of those who repent of their sins and put their faith in Christ alone for salvation. When we've done those things and we continue to look for evidence in our lives and make that our primary focus, we're no longer trusting upon God's promises. And we're no longer looking to Christ as our source of salvation. We're starting to allow ourselves to become more focused on, you know, the evidences we see in our lives. Yep. You mentioned 
That's right. Yeah, that's right. And you have to continue. You know, you will continue to make progress, but it, it happens over time. You know, not overnight. Um, yeah, and in chapter six, we'll see here more kind of goes into more on that when he's talking about assurance of salvation. Um, and so, you know, the last thing Moore says here, I, I like. He says that this type of attitude, it's never going to give a satisfactory evidence to warrant the appropriation of such infinite blessings, right? If we're focused inward, we're never going to be satisfied uh, that we actually have been given these infinite blessings. Um, and we know this concept, right? Um, you know, one of the hymns that addresses these uh, topics directly is, you know, come ye sinners, poor and needy. Um, there's a n- number of lines within that hymn that address exactly what we're talking about here. Uh, but you know, arguably none of them are, are more specific to this particular issue than, uh, you know, the the verse, let not conscience make you linger, nor fitness fondly dream. All the fitness he requireth is to feel your need of him. You know, uh, that's exactly what we're talking about here. Feeling your need of Christ is what makes you fit for him as a savior, not your own goodness. Um just one more quote on this topic from Moore. Uh, you know, he gives the, again, he always gives the way out of, of bondage, and it, it always comes back to the gospel if, if you are paying attention. Um, he says, Out of this bondage, right thoughts of Christ and his salvation will deliver the soul. For in our thoughts of himself is found our true evidence of having an interest in his finished salvation, his own word being witness. For if our need leads us to him alone for help, if our sin-sick state leads us to him alone for healing, if our lost condition leads us to trust in his atoning death alone for salvation, we have the sure evidence that we are his. To all such, how assuring are his words, him that cometh unto me, I will in no wise cast out. And so th- this is encouraging for, you know, the, you know, as Pastor Fry said, the new convert um, who's trying to understand you know, how do I know I'm saved? Well, if these things are true of you, then, then indeed, uh, you do have faith in Christ. If you're looking to him alone for all that you need uh, for salvation. I had a couple of, you know, good verses just to, as reminders, you know, that, uh, again, I think it helps a lot uh, when we remember that even our faith is a work of God. It's not our own work that we're doing for ourselves. It's a work that God is doing within us. I think that also gives us a great amount of hope uh, because we no longer are dependent upon ourselves, right? We understand that God is the one working within us. And yes, there is, we are working alongside him in that, but ultimately it's God who is accomplishing our salvation. And we know that because we see it over and over and over again in Scripture. Uh, um, 
you know, in these verses I put up here, I just underline, you know, things to remember where it's, you know, showing who is performing the actions here. You know, it's always God performing the actions. So we see in Ephesians chapter 2, But God, being rich in mercy, because of the great love with which he loved us, oh, sorry, it stopped um, presenting there. Let me see if I can get it to go again. Oh, there we go. <laughs> okay, sorry about that. Uh, so, yeah, in Ephesians chapter 2, we read, But God, being rich in mercy, because of the great love with which he loved us, even when we were dead in our trespasses, made us alive, God made us alive, he's the one taking the action, together with Christ, by grace you have been saved, and raised us up with him, and seated us with him in the heavenly places in Christ Jesus, so that in the coming ages he might show the immeasurable riches of his grace and kindness toward us in Christ Jesus. For by grace you have been saved through faith, and this is not your own doing, it is the gift of God, not a result of works, so that no one may boast." Again, every time we see an action being performed there, it's God who's doing the work, right? He's the one who is saving us. Philippians chapter 1, we read, I thank my God in all my remembrance of you, always in every prayer of mine for you, all making my prayer with joy, because of your partnership in the gospel from the first day until now. And I am sure of this, that he who began a good work in you will bring it to completion at the day of Jesus Christ. So from the beginning to the end, our salvation is a work of God. And that ought to give us comfort. And then the last one we'll touch on here, the fourth type of bondage that Moore talks about is bondage from a wrong view of faith. Or in other words, a wrong view of what faith is. Moore says here, some are in bondage from wrong views of faith. Their cry is, I want faith. I know that salvation is free and that it is all in Christ, but I want faith. I'm wretched because I have no faith, and my salvation all depends upon my faith. I know it is the gift of God, and I'm continually praying to God to give it to me, and I shall never be happy until I have got it. And Moore says, this also is sore bondage, from which full deliverance is found in looking only to Christ and thinking only of him. Again, this type of person has put all of their attention on faith rather than in Christ, who is the author and finisher of our faith, the perfecter of our faith. And, you know, I, I can't really say it much better than Moore does, so I'll, I'll read essentially his response here. He says, So many look for faith instead of looking only to Christ. They do not see that in doing this, the primary object of their desire is not Christ, but faith. If such a one be conscious that he is guilty before God and utterly unable to do anything to save himself, if he knows that God's only way of saving sinners is through Jesus Christ his Son, whom he sent to be the Savior by suffering and dying in their stead, and who also was raised again from the dead and ascended into heaven, if he has no other hope for the salvation of his soul but in the Lord Jesus thus dying, he already possesses faith." the faith for which he has been so long seeking and praying. And he would have had the full consciousness of this had not his seeking for faith and looking for faith, instead of looking only to Christ, 
brought him into such bondage that his eyes were blinded to his real condition as already possessing faith and already possessing salvation. So again, you know, it may sound silly to some, but if you've ever been there, you know that this is a real type of bondage. You know, oftentimes um, we can get so fixated on faith that we forget to look to Christ. And we forget that, indeed, if we are depending upon him wholly and completely for our salvation and nothing else, we already have the faith that we're so desperately looking for. And so that uh, closes out chapter 5, and we'll go ahead and continue into chapter 6, which, when you read it, it just really feels like a continuation of chapter 5. It's essentially just taking everything that Moore said in 5 and and fleshing it out with the focus now turning uh, specifically to assurance of salvation for the Christian. So he starts out the chapter by saying, assurance of personal salvation comes only through trusting and believing. That is, through trusting to the death of Christ as the only way of salvation and believing God's word when he says that all who do so have eternal life. This and this only is the sure ground of assurance. God cannot lie. Christ has not died in vain. His death is the finished salvation of all who trust in him. I really like how Moore says that. Um, you know, God has made these promises in Scripture that there is, therefore, now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. Christ indeed has died to save and to redeem his elect people, the people that the Father has given to him to save. God has made these promises, and when we get caught in that cycle of continually questioning and doubting our salvation, you know, not that that's always a bad thing. It's not always a bad thing to uh, consider our lives and to look at whether or not we are living in accordance to God's commandments, but when we become obsessive over those things, we're failing to trust in God's promises to his people. And we need to remember exactly what Moore said there. You know, God cannot lie. Christ has not died in vain. His death is the finished salvation of all who trust in him. We see in Hebrews chapter 10, uh, starting in verse 11, a great, um, you know, there's a a number of passages in Hebrews that talk about how Christ has uh, accomplished fully the salvation of his people through his atoning work on the cross, his once-for-all sacrifice for sins. But um, here, this clip from uh, chapter 10 is is one of those that that really uh, sums it up in a succinct way. Uh, There, the writer says, And every priest stands daily at his service, offering repeatedly the same sacrifices, which can never take away sins. But when Christ had offered for all time a single sacrifice for sins... He sat down at the right hand of God, waiting from that time until his enemies should be made a footstool for his feet. For by a single offering, he has perfected for all time those who are being sanctified. Those who are being sanctified have already been perfected. Right? Well, how is that so if they're growing in righteousness? Well, what he's talking about here is our standing before God. Our reconciliation to God has already been perfectly accomplished by Christ. Our peace that we have with God through Christ is perfect. 
There's nothing else that we can do or that we will do that will make it better or more, more perfect. Christ has already made it perfect, and we need to, to rest upon that and embrace it and then take that and use it as you know, an encouragement, as a joy as we go forth in life and seek to live lives that are pleasing to God. And that's what Moore is trying to get us to focus on you know, over and over again as, as he brings us back here in his, uh, these early chapters. Um, and then, as we talked about before, Moore does turn to the question, he anticipates it, of, you know, what about sanctification? What about the ongoing work of the Spirit in the life of the Christian? Uh, you know, as Moore says here, am I not to be better? So, as I mentioned, you know, Moore is not neglecting that. Uh, he's just simply trying to keep our focus on Christ where it needs to be. But let's go ahead and see you know, what Moore says here. He says, Am I not to be better? No, not before salvation. But after salvation, you will be both better and worse in your own consciousness. Worse, because you will be sure to learn more clearly how far short you come of all spiritual goodness and how much greater is the power of indwelling sin. But on the other hand, you'll also be better in your own consciousness inasmuch as you will be conscious that you have a more healthy appetite, for you will be sure to hunger after Christ. You will want to hear more about Christ and think more about him. You will want to rejoice in him and to please him in your daily walk. You will also find that sin, however it may strive within, has not that mastery over you it once had because of your relationship to Christ, who gives you strength against it, and because of the new nature you possess through the Holy Spirit's gracious work, which gives you an increasing dislike to it. So Moore doesn't necessarily answer the question probably in the, the way that we thought he would. First, he you know, points out, well, you know, am I not to be better? Well, yeah, sort of. You'll, you'll be worse in your own consciousness in some ways because you'll actually see the depravity that is within you, and you'll feel your utter inability for anything good before God. On the other hand, yes, there will be encouragement, and you will, uh, you know, you will feel encouraged because you will have that work of the Holy Spirit within you, giving you, a, you know, a new nature and new desires, new appetites, you know, new hungers, as, as Moore says here. You know, you'll find that the things that you used to desire, the things that you used to hunger for, those sinful things, all of a sudden that appetite starts to go away. You know, maybe not necessarily immediately. Sometimes it may be immediately, but, you know, over time those appetites will diminish and your hunger for Christ and for his righteousness and the things that he says are good, that hunger will only increase more and more uh, as time goes on. And so, yes, there will be evidences of sanctification in your life you know again i think more addresses this here because he doesn't want us to to think that he's saying that there won't be you know growth in grace and encouragement that we can gain from seeing the work of the holy spirit in our lives um you know going back to romans chapter six uh you know we see that you know great discourse from paul essentially saying that, yes, we're, we cannot go on living in sin because we've died to sin. You know, God has made us a new person. When he saves us, he's, uh, 
He's giving us new appetites, new desires and hungers that cause us to change. Um, you know, he says there, starting in verse 17, But thanks be to God that you who were once slaves of sin have become obedient from the heart to the standard of teaching to which you were committed, and having been set free from sin, have become slaves of righteousness. So there, you know, um, there's a lot more that we could unpack in Romans chapter 6, but, uh, you know, Paul's pointing out that, you know, God has done this work. He has set us free from that bondage to sin, and he's made us slaves of righteousness, which is a true blessing. Um, and so, you know, this is addressing that, that change within us that God has wrought. You know, the change from being slaves, being under the, the complete power and authority of sin, to now being slaves of righteousness. And then, you know, there may not be another specific book in the Bible that's uh, more targeted toward um, giving Christians or helping them to have assurance of their salvation than First John, the epistle of First John. Um, in that book, uh, kind of later in the book, in chapter 5, John even gives his sort of summary statement of why he wrote the book. He says, I write these things to you who believe in the name of the Son of God, that you may know that you have eternal life. So we see throughout that book continually, John is giving the early Christians and us a, uh, you know, reasons to be encouraged that we do have uh, salvation in Christ, that we can know that we are saved. It, it's something that he's concerned about and that he's addressing in that book. And there's a number of, you know, uh, good texts, you know, that we could pull from in there. Uh, you know, we don't have time to go through it in a whole lot of detail this morning, but, you know, he gives examples of, you know, different kind of tests to, to show that we have, uh, that we can have assurance of salvation. The test of, you know, are you confessing and repenting of sin, right? He says those, uh, you know, when we confess our sins, God is faithful to forgive them. Um, he gives the, a test of orthodoxy, you know, are you holding to the correct orthodoxy? saying that anyone who does not have the Son does not have the Father. Whoever confesses the Son has the Father also. You know, just saying that we need to have the right orthodoxy. But then he also talks about orthopraxy. He talks about our Christian walk and how that also is a reflection of the sanctification that's uh, going on within our lives that, that God is causing to happen. Uh, and, and there... You know, just one example, there are others in, in that book, but in chapter 2, starting in verse 3, he says, And by this we know that we have come to know him, if we keep his commandments. Whoever says, I know him, but does not keep his commandments, is a liar, and the truth is not in him. But whoever keeps his word, in him truly the love of God is perfected. By this we may know that we are in him. Whoever says he abides in him ought to walk in the same way in which he walked. And so we know that, you know, we can see within our lives that, again, we're not, when he says we ought to walk in the same way in which Christ walked, he's not saying we're going to walk in perfect righteousness. He would be conflicting everything else that he said and everything else we see in Scripture if he were to say that. But he's saying that over time, our Christian walk will reflect uh, Christ and his righteousness. We will be, uh, as we talked about, we'll have different hungers and different appetites uh, you know, those will have hungers for the things that Christ says are good, and that will result in us being more obedient 
uh, to God's commandments more and more so over time as God continues to um, conform us to the image of Christ. And so, yes, you know, this is addressing the, the issue of will there be evidence in the Christian's life of salvation? Of, of course there will be, and we see that throughout Scripture. But again, more brings us back uh, once more to where does our focus need to be if, if we're struggling with assurance of salvation or if this is a major issue or question for us. Moore says, All this, however, does not in the least make your salvation from the wrath to come in any way more perfect. It is perfect to start with, else your salvation would be of works. So again, he's hammering home that our salvation that we have in Christ is already perfect. Christ's work on the cross already has perfected all of those who are being sanctified, right, as we read in Hebrews. So while we should be glad that we are growing in grace and when we see those evidences of sanctification in our lives, we also have to always keep that sanctification separated from our justification. Remember that, you know, these good works that we're walking in, which God prepared beforehand, as we read in Ephesians chapter 2, those are not adding to our salvation in any way. They're not making it more perfect or, uh, you know, making it better. Our salvation that we have in Christ is already perfect. You know, that growth in grace is a blessing to us and our lives. It's glorifying to God, but we can't let ourselves then sort of transition into thinking that that somehow is making our salvation better or more perfect. It's not. Um, just a few more verses here talking about salvation that I thought were you know, sort of helpful as I was walking through this. Uh, just reminders that our salvation is indeed perfect. It is indeed complete. In Romans chapter 8, there is therefore now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. There, when we are saved by Christ, we are saved fully and completely. There is no condemnation for us. That's a wonderful promise that we have in Scripture. Uh, John chapter 3, whoever believes in the Son has eternal life. Whoever does not obey the Son shall not see life, but the wrath of God remains on him. Notice there, he says, whoever believes in the Son has eternal life, not will have or could have. They do have it. It's in their possession. Uh, Colossians chapter 2, starting verse 11. In In him also you were circumcised, with a circumcision made without hands, by putting off the body of the flesh, by the circumcision of Christ, having been buried with him in baptism. Again, you were circumcised, having been buried, in which you were also raised. These things have happened. They're done. Uh, You were raised with him through faith and the powerful working of God who raised him from the dead. And you who were dead in your trespasses and the uncircumcision of your flesh, God made alive together with him, having forgiven us all our trespasses, by canceling the record of debt that stood against us with its legal demands. This he set aside, nailing it to the cross. Notice all of those statements there are about things that God has done. There's not something else that we're going to add to that to make it better. And then lastly, just coming back to Hebrews chapter 10, we have this exhortation as Christians to... um, to have confidence and to rest in that full assurance of faith uh, 
through Christ and to let that allow us to be more obedient and more, um, I guess, zealous and excited about having the opportunity to obey Christ and, and to please God in doing so. Uh, there we see, uh, starting in verse 19, this exhortation. Therefore, brothers, since we have confidence to enter the holy places by the blood of Jesus, by the new and living way that he opened for us through the curtain, that is, through his flesh, and since we have a great priest over the house of God, let us draw near with a true heart and full assurance of faith, with our hearts sprinkled clean from an evil conscience and our bodies washed with pure water. Let us hold fast the confession of our hope without wavering, for he who promised is faithful. There's the grounds of our hope, right? Because God is faithful. And let us consider how to stir up one another to love and good works, not neglecting to meet together, as is the habit of some, but encouraging one another, and all the more as you see the day drawing near. So here we see again, why is it that we have confidence? Because God, who has promised salvation, is faithful. We're not dependent upon our own faithfulness for salvation. We're dependent upon God's faithfulness. That's why we can have hope. That's why we can have confidence. And also in this passage, I, I wanted to include it because I really like, you know, since we're talking about the topic of assurance of salvation, what it says there, you know, the exhortation to, you know, let us consider how to stir up one another to love and good works, not neglecting to meet together. That entails that as Christians, we're spending time together. We're worshiping together, obviously, on the Lord's Day, but we're also spending time with one another outside of that. And in doing so, we can stir one another up to love and good works. Now, if, you know, for those of us who've struggled with assurance of salvation, how many times has that coincided with, you know, uh, you know not, or with, you know, failing to meet together, right? Whether it's, you know, perhaps for a season you weren't going to church or you just were not, you know, participating, you weren't uh, interacting with other Christians and stirring one another up, encouraging one another in the faith. Um, God has given us one another for that, you know, obviously he's brought us together to worship him, but it's also a great blessing that we can come together and encourage one another in our faith. And when we're going through seasons of doubt, other Christians can speak into our lives. They can, you know, remind us of the gospel, remind us of our, um, you know, complete dependence upon Christ. Uh, we have to be sure not to neglect to meet together, um, because that is typically when we're going to see, you know, the doubts begin to creep in, and there's not going to be other people helping us, um, you know, other Christians helping us to remember the promises that we have in Scripture. And that is, uh, that concludes our lesson today.